Hey listeners, I'm your host, Daniel Schroeder, and this is the Biotech and Breweries podcast. Each episode, I'll share a beer or two from one of San Diego's best breweries with a leader from the biotech community as we try to make sense of the science behind some of the amazing biotech companies that call San Diego home. During my conversation with Jan, we tried a few of the hard kombuchas brewed at Boochcraft while we talked about the three drugs they have in the pipeline currently, along with what's coming next. We also talked about how COVID brought a funding silver lining, what the company hopes to accomplish over the next 10 years, and more. All right, Jan, it's great to see you. Thank you very much for coming on the Biotech and Breweries podcast. Great to see you, Dan. Thank you for the invitation. Yep. And uh, as you just shared, you uh, you seem like you're very appreciative of the introduction um, that we kind of made to Boochcraft, which is the organic hard kombucha that we're, we're trying kind of as we talk here. Um, I'll tell you what, I love it. <laughs> um, I, I had no idea this and, and the fact that it's local as well. I, I just, I love it. You know, it's healthy. It's good for you. You get your probiotics and um, I tried two of the flavors and I really, really like them. So they have a new client. Thanks to That's you. Great. Yeah. I, I don't know that alcohol is ever truly healthy for you, but uh, I like to joke and kind of say that having one of these is similar to having a salad because, you know, some of them have some pretty healthy ingredients in them. So I don't know that you want to have uh, several might, might eliminate the health benefits, but it's definitely a healthy alternative to most of the other, other options out there. Oh, I agree. I mean, and it's all natural. There's no preservatives. Um, and I like the fact, you know, I, I looked on their website uh, to find out where I could buy more. And yeah. um, I found out that they, they manufacture everything sustainably as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's it, it's great. I, I'd love to support it. That's great. Yeah. And so you've I think you said you've got the the orange pomegranate flavor there. I do. So um, I've got yeah, I've got that one and also the grapefruit hibiscus. So I'm going to be kind of sampling both of those. But I don't think you can really go wrong with the flavors. Yeah, and I uh, I tried the apple jasmine as well, which I really liked. Um, and what I thought was so interesting is you can really pick up all the the flavors, you know. So this orange pomegranate not only has pomegranate, but it's got beets in it. Yeah. Um, and and rosemary, and you really get a hint of the rosemary. It really is quite amazing. Yeah, it's really good. And you you said this I think we were talking earlier, but it's a probiotic plant-based and gluten-free, which I know is something that you look for uh, with, with drinks for sure. Exactly. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really thrilled to, to find it. So appreciate it. Well, great. Awesome. Well, I want to get into a couple areas with you. I, I obviously want to hear how the company is doing. And uh, I know you've had some exciting developments recently that we'll get to talk about. But before we do that, I think it'd be great to just understand your background a little bit. Uh, I know you've been with the current company for about five years, but We'd love to hear kind of how you got your start in the life science world um, and, and kind of go from there. Sure. Um, well, I, uh, I always loved the sciences. Uh, so, you know, even in high school, took as many extra, you know, science classes as I could. My undergraduate degree is in biology or biochemistry. Um, and then I took a number of uh, postgraduate courses. I, I thought I was going to go on and be a physician. Um, and kind of changed direction. Actually, um, I had a summer job where I was selling diagnostic test kits to physicians, and I fell in love with the business side of it. So uh, the rest is kind of history, as they say. I mean, so I, I came up through sales and, and marketing, um, uh, initially with small uh, companies that uh, first one went public. So I was part of the team that took them public. Very successful company was eventually acquired by a big uh, diagnostic company. And then I went into pharma. So uh, started out uh, on the, the, the sales commercial side and then moved over into running a large business unit uh, initially for Syntex and then Roche acquired us. So, you know, ended up working in big pharma for a few years. Uh, so that was a great experience. I ran a very large global drug development uh, organization. We had, um, boy, hundreds of employees all over the world, basically, that were working on drugs in the pain and inflammation area. 
Um, and then, you know, I decided to strike out and be an entrepreneur. A friend of mine who I'd worked with a few years earlier, very good scientist, came up with a great idea for a new diagnostic test. Um, and so I started my career as an entrepreneur. And uh, so we, we were very successful with that company. We, we got it sold. Uh, then I went on and started another company uh, in the more in the genomic space. So this was right around 2000 when you know we had the whole genomic re revolution, and uh, we developed some tools to help researchers uh, ampl amplify RNA and DNA for analysis. Um, and um, so so that company was very successful. We sold that to uh, to a um, private equity group. Um, and, uh, and then I did a couple turnarounds, uh, investors, uh, brought me in or boards to into troubled situations and I helped them turn organizations around and, uh, you know, in some cases get them funded, uh, both, uh, both situations ended up with an acquisition. Uh, so, so, you know, very successful outcomes. And, uh, and then after that, I found Acosti. Uh, actually, one of my board members knew the chairman there and introduced us. And uh, so I've been here for about five and a half years. And uh, it's been a really interesting and, and fun, uh, you know, opportunity. Yeah, well, that's amazing. And it sounds like the experience is you've got a lot of experience. And it sounds like you've had experience in different with different size companies and in, in different roles. Um, I think you said marketing at one point in there. So you, you've kind of yeah. done, you've kind of done it all. Yeah, I start, really started in sales and marketing. So really started carrying the bag. And I think, you know, I've always had a passion for the, first of all, the patient, you know, and really trying to understand the, the disease state and what patients and their families are going through. And then, uh, you know, leveraging technology to come up with better solutions to, to make their lives better, you know, treat disease improve quality of life and, and improve outcomes. So this has really been a passion of mine. I love the industry we're in, you know, it's just so exciting um, yep. what's going on. And San Diego, of course, is a real hub, you know, yep. uh, of uh, innovation. So it's been great to be here. Yeah, no, it's been, uh, you know, being here in San Diego, I think uh, it's it's been a lot of fun to watch the growth. And mm -hmm. I think if you look, looking forward, I think the expectation is it's going to continue to grow on the same uh, the same pace. It's, it's headed in a pretty exciting direction, I think. It is. And, you know, we've got world-class research organizations here. Um, we've got some of the best hospitals, you know, that are doing uh, clinical research. Uh, you know, you consider Scripps and UCSD. Uh, you know, it's, it's really just an amazing place to be. So a lot of smart people here. Yeah. And I would imagine it's like, if you're if you're looking for a job and you're, especially this time of year, if you're looking for a job in the life science world and you're in Chicago, you're on the East Coast, as it starts to snow and you can't go outside, it's got to be, it's got to be nice trying to recruit you know, into San Diego, I would imagine. It's, it's, a, it's a, obviously a great place to live. Um, it's less expensive than some of the other, other markets, which is kind of surprising if you compare us to the San Francisco's of the world. Um, so I think we definitely have that, have a lot going for us. That's true. Um, you know, the, the other two, the biggest hubs, of course, are San Francisco and Boston. Yep. They're so much more expensive than San Diego. Yep. Yep. You know, and, and we just have better weather, you know, yeah. flat out. It's just so yep. much nicer to be here. So, yeah. Well, right. so I guess anybody listening, looking for a job, you know, San Diego, it's a great time to make the move to San Diego. <laughs> skip, <laughs> skip the brutal winter. <laughs> exactly. So I would love to kind of, you know, have you get into Acosti and, and tell us maybe what, what led you to join, what led you to, to join the company a few years ago. And then um, I know you've had some exciting developments, but we'd love to hear kind of understand what the company is working towards and what you think the, the, the future holds. Yeah, you know, it's it's really been an interesting uh you know, ride here at, at, at Acosti. When I joined about five and a half years ago. Uh, we were focusing cardiovascular disease, um, and we were working on a drug to lower triglycerides. Um, you know, so this is a, a big problem. You know, patients have very often patients that have high cholesterol also have high triglycerides. Okay. Um, and it's a, a precursor to heart disease. Um, so it needs to be treated. And we were working on a um, really a natural approach, taking uh, oil out of krill. Um, you know, krill are the little crustaceans in the ocean that the, wheel, the whales eat. 
Um, yep. and basically, they're full of omega three, um, you know, omega three fatty acids. So, uh, and 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 they also have something called phospholipids. It's a carrier molecule for the omega threes. So we were we we were working with a a company that extracted the oil, and then we converted the oil into a drug uh, for lowering triglycerides. And we had um, great success with the program through phase one, phase two. Uh, we had a big phase three program ongoing over the last couple of years. And unfortunately, um, that did not, that was not successful. Uh, not because the drug didn't work. The drug arm was, was very successful. Uh, but for reasons uh, that are, you know, would take a long time to discuss, um, the placebo didn't work. So, so we could not go forward to approve the drug. And so we got these results just a little over a year ago. So last fall, and we were at a point that that was the only drug we had in the pipeline. We were a one drug company. So we didn't have much cash left, you know, so there wasn't uh, the opportunity to redo the trial. Um, So we, we began a strategic process late last year to identify companies to either merge with or acquire. Um, and then fortunately, you know, uh, biotech stocks were very hot just about a year ago, December, yeah. January. Sure. And so we were able to raise uh, some significant capital at very high prices. So um, it, it was very successful. That completely changed our situation, put us kind of in the driver's seat. And we had the opportunity to evaluate about 100 companies. It was really an intensive process that we went through with our bankers. And we ended up selecting Grace Therapeutics. And we announced that acquisition uh, in May and then completed the transaction uh, just in August. So it's only been three, four months post-acquisition. And we selected them because they have a not only a core competency in chemistry and drug formulation, uh, the, the, the key uh, employees uh, have a long track record of developing really um, exciting and successful commercial drugs by reformulating um, currently marketed drugs. And so uh, they applied that to, to orphan and, and rare diseases and we have now a pipeline of three assets in the clinic that I can tell you more about um, and several that are in at a preclinical stage. Uh, one in particular could be accelerated fairly quickly into the clinic next year. So we went from having one failed drug to now a portfolio of, of drugs that um, we think are have, have a great chance of being very successful. Uh, And the reason is, I I should mention that not not only are these orphan drugs, so we we have orphan status from the FDA, this gives us uh, seven years of market exclusivity, Uh, gives us tax credits, it gives us special pricing capability. So it's it's very attractive, Um, you know, but it allows us because we're taking drugs that are already on the market for different indications, and reformulating them in a better way to improve efficacy and safety, um, it allows us to take a fast path to approval. So it streamlines the clinical trial process um, and you know the, the cost of the program is less and the risk is lower, right? Because these are already marketed drugs. We know a lot about them. We know a lot about their safety and efficacy profile. And all we're doing is reformulating them in special ways to make them more efficacious and, and hopefully safer. So, so that's our strategy and that's where we are right now. Yeah, I like it. Um, so I think, you know, this day and age, had you go, you know, go back two years, most people in the world didn't know, weren't as familiar with clinical trials or the term efficacy um, as much as they are now. I think everyone's had to you know, watch the, the COVID uh, vaccination uh, development really closely and have kind of become more educated on it since then. But, but one term you mentioned a couple of times that may not be familiar to some of our listeners is, is orphan drugs. Um, would you just mind elaborating a little bit on what, what that means? Sure, sure. So an, an orphan disease is one that has an incidence or prevalence of less than 200,000 people. 
Okay, so um, that basically is the FDA's definition. And uh, when you get an orphan drug status or designation from the FDA, what that means is that if you're the first to come to market um, in that indication, they will give you seven years of market exclusivity. So they won't allow an, a competitor to come into the market for seven years. You know, and then of course, what's important in, in the biotech field uh, is to have patents. So we have a portfolio of more than 40 patents and the patents provide exclusivity beyond the seven years that the FDA gives you. Okay, so, you know, our patents, um, the earliest expire in 2036. Okay. Uh, and if, you know, if we go to market uh, in late 24, early 25 with our first drug, that gives us, you know, another six, what's, you know, five, six years on top of the exclusivity we get from the FDA. Yeah, so, so I guess the, the the goal, I'm sure, from the FDA's perspective is to provide some additional incentive for, for companies like yours to spend your time and resources developing drugs that maybe wouldn't otherwise be financially viable. Is that maybe that, a good way of That's it? exactly right. You, you nailed yeah. it, Dan. Um, you know, so it's, it's going to be more attractive to smaller companies like ours. The big pharmas, you know, they're not going to spend time and money on a drug unless it's, you know, potentially billions of dollars. Right. The interesting thing, though, is that the first three drugs that we have in the clinic right now, the combined market potential, so the available market um, for our for those drugs in the United States alone is about $2 billion. So, you know, orphan designation doesn't necessarily mean small market. Right. Um, it really means that you're, you know, when you get that designation, you get to go in and, and really not have any competition. So it's uh, and, and the, you know, the, the, the physicians involved in these orphan diseases often are in concentrated locations. So for an orphan disease company like ours, it, it actually makes commercialization easier. Right. So, you know, you can we can typically market ourselves. That's our plan with our first two drugs. Um, you know, the, the market is very concentrated, very targeted, um, and we only need a very small sales force to be able to sell these products. So, yeah, that's great. And when you say small sales force, how, how big is the team? How many how many employees does Acosti have currently? Well, right now we're mostly an R&D team. Uh, we do have a VP of commercial operations who's really focused on marketing and market development and, you know, um, pricing, reimbursement, that sort of thing. Um, but the, we have about 22 employees, I think now it's just under 25. Um, but, you know, we probably will more than double that. We'll probably triple that when we start to move towards, um, you know, commercialization. Uh, we'll probably add 30 to 40, maybe up to 50 commercial folks um, all in the United States. Okay. And keep in mind, I don't know, we didn't mention, but, you know, Acosti is a Canadian company. Right. I knew that. Uh, and I was going to ask you about that. Right. So we're actually, you know, headquartered in in Montreal. Um, but, uh, you know, we're really over the time that I've been with the company, we've been really migrating towards the U.S. market. Um, so, you know, we're listed on NASDAQ as well as the TSXV. OK. Um, and we we're now a domestic issuer. So we have migrated our financials to Gap and um, and really, the majority of our shareholders are now in the United States. Are there are there advantages to being headquartered, like maybe from a tax standpoint or other perspectives? Are there advantages to being located in Canada? Yeah, that's a great question, and the answer is yes. Uh, actually, we get very significant tax credits. Okay. Um, we have accumulated. Uh, I want to say it's about a hundred and more than 125 million in um, lost lost carry forwards that okay. we can apply against future taxes. Um, and and as I mentioned, getting having orphan status, the the FDA allows you or grants you the ability to apply 50% of your development costs in the United States towards tax credits in the future. Okay. So it's um, it's very attractive. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, and you mentioned um, that having a pipeline. I think you said of, of three 
three drugs that are in the, well, there's three drugs in the clinic currently, and I think more to come. Do you want to elaborate on kind of maybe just go into any detail on what the, the three are and kind of what maybe what's what's coming? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So the drug that's furthest along, <clears throat> we call GTX 104. And this is a drug that is going to be targeted for a disease, or actually it's a it's 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 a disease called subarachnoid hemorrhage and is triggered by an aneurysm. So you may have known someone who has had a brain aneurysm. You you hear about it from time to time. Um, and it's very deadly, actually. People don't know they have an aneurysm. Uh, it, it can strike very suddenly. And 10 to 15% of these patients tend to die before they even get to the hospital. Yep. Um, so it's it's quite deadly. Um, and then they go into surgery immediately um, and, you know, to repair the aneurysm. So they literally open the brain, you know, uh, re surgically repair uh, the, the burst blood vessel. Um, and then what's really important is to control blood pressure in those patients. You don't want blood pressure to get too high, uh, you know, because it could cause another aneurysm or, you know, break through where, where you surgically did your repair. Um, so they put these patients on a drug called nemotipine. Uh, and nemotipine um, is, is it's really interesting. It's a calcium channel blocker. So that's a big class of drugs used to lower blood pressure. But this one is specific for the brain. So it, it acts on the blood vessels in the brain. And what it does is it relaxes the blood vessels and allows more blood to flow into the brain so that the brain can heal faster. Um, and now the problem is that it's only available in an oral form. And, okay. and this is because nevodipine is very insoluble. It's very hard to put into solution. Okay, so... Um, Unfortunately, most of these patients are unconscious. I should mention they, they end up spending 10 days to two weeks in the intensive care unit. Yeah. Most yeah. of the time they're unconscious. And so the nursing staff has to break up a capsule, put it in solution, you know, deliver it to the patient through a nasal gastric tube okay. directly into the stomach. Yep. And when it gets in the stomach, only about 13% of the drug is absorbed. Okay. So... And the problem is it's 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 very variable absorption. So you yep. get these peaks and troughs of blood levels, which translate into very variable blood pressure. Okay, so this is the problem. It's hard to control the amount of drug that's actually getting into the patient. These are very critically ill patients. And so there's no way to really carefully titrate the drug. And once it's in, you can't take it out. Yeah. So okay. and this is this is the risk. Um, you know, if you if you take blood pressure too low, that patient can go into what we call vasospasm, where the blood vessels collapse, and then they have to go back into surgery, you know, and get a repair. So that typically they do do a balloon, um, you know, uh, angioplasty, uh, or in, in, insert uh, vasopressors directly into the, the, the vein uh, or the artery into the, in the brain. Um, very risky surgery, okay? So a large percentage of these patients end up dying. Um, so it's, it, it truly is all about managing blood pressure. So what we've done is our, uh, again, our chemistry team has, has successfully figured out how to solubilize nemotipine. It, it, it had never been done before. So we have patents around that and we put it into an IV solution. So all, and again, keep in mind, these, this is intensive care. So these patients are all on an IV. Sure. So delivering another drug via IV is so easy and, yeah. and convenient, right? Versus every two to four hours having to deliver oral nemotipine through their noses. Yep. Um, so what we have seen in our clinical data so far is very consistent blood levels um, and compared to the big swings that we see with the oral. And the data that we announced last week was uh, interim data from a P PK or pharmacokinetic study. This is a very important study. The FDA wants us to show that our our infusion protocol or the rate at which we're delivering drug via IV 
is correct, you know. Um, so what they want us to do is show that on an average, the blood levels are fairly equivalent to what physicians are seeing with the oral. And um, we announced last week that we saw blood levels that were almost identical with the oral. So what this means is our trial will be able to go to completion and should be successful. And that will now enable us to go directly um, to phase three. Uh, and what's great is the FDA has told us that all we need to do is a safety study. Um, because, you know, again, nemotapine is a drug that they know, you know, and they, they understand the efficacy of it. Uh, they really want to make sure that our IV form will be at least as safe as the oral. Sure. And, and so far, what we've seen is that, you know, because the consistency is better and keep in mind, if a patient starts, if blood pressure starts to get too low, the physician can back off on the infusion uh, rate, right? Or if, if the blood pressure is too high, they can crank it down and, you know, give the patient more nemotapine. So it's very easy um, to control and manage blood pressure when you, you're delivering it through an IV. So, so hopefully that explains, you know, what, what we're doing. Um, yeah. I, I would think if you, when you go through the stomach too, it's, it's probably the, it takes longer to do the body digests a little bit more slowly. Yep. There's probably a little bit of a lag between when the medicine is administered and when you can actually see if it's helping or doing what it's intended to do. Whereas going directly into, you know, through the IV drip, it's more of an immediate impact and easily, more easily kind of measurable. Is that Fair. You're exactly right. In okay. fact, that's really what bioavailability is all about. Right. And, you know, we're able to reduce the dose of nemotapine being delivered to the patient almost more than tenfold, actually. And the reason for that is because of exactly what you said. When you deliver it by IV, all of it is getting into the blood. When you go through the stomach, only 10%, 10 to 13% is actually absorbed. And again, it's very variable depending on the individual. So you can have some people who absorb better than others, and and then you don't know how to control blood pressure once it's in. So yep. it's, a, it's a real problem. And so we think this is going to end up in you know better outcomes. It, it just kind of makes sense. You know, if you can control blood pressure better, there's probably going to be fewer incidences where these patients have to go back into surgery. We, certainly there's going to be less nursing care involved. So that saves costs in the healthcare system, right? Yep. Um, but if you can get the patients out of the ICU sooner because you've had better control of their blood pressure throughout, this is going to have a huge pharmacoeconomic impact on the healthcare system. So, and by the way, I didn't mention this, but this is a really expensive disease to treat. Um, on average, it costs over $200,000 per patient stay. Wow. You know, and keep in mind that only a third of these patients come out of the hospital and are able to go back to their normal lives. And this is because blood pressure is hard to control. Yep. So we really think that, that this is going to lead to better outcomes for these patients, we hope. and, and Yeah. You know, well, that. it sounds like there's a lot of room for improvement on, on outcomes. So that's that's great. Mm -hmm. It'd be, it can be very impactful. We hope so. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and so, so go ahead, go yeah, ahead. I, I think you're, no, maybe I'm we're going to get into one of the other, other things you guys are working on. No, happy to. Um, you know, let me tell you about GTX 102. Uh, that's the second drug that we have uh, in the clinic right now. Um, very similar name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you one, just, you one probably, re probably refer to one of them as four and one of them as two, I would imagine. It might be exactly. We probably should do that shorthand, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and this one uh, is for a, a disease called ataxia telangiectasia. Oh, that's a mouthful. Okay. Yeah, it's a big <laughs> mouthful. So I'm going to call it AT for short. Okay, I okay. like that. I can, I can do that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this is a really, really sad disorder. Um, it's a genetic disease and it affects young children. Um, Parents usually notice that their child is, is lacking coordination even before they crawl or, or walk. I mean, typically these kids are diagnosed, you know, one to three years of age, um, you know, but they, they really have mobility and, and coordination issues. It also affects their immune system and they're very predisposed to infections 
and unfortunately cancers. Um, so a lot of these kids get blood cancers, uh, lymphomas, leukemias, and also brain cancers. So it's rare for these kids to live beyond, let's say their mid twenties. Um, so devastating disease, um, unfortunately there is no treatment today. <clears throat> um, and, and, you know, so, so these kids get uh, physical therapy, they get speech therapy, um, and, and steroids have been used in these kids uh, off-label. Um, there's, there's no approved drug for ataxia telangiectasia today. So um, what we're doing is we're leveraging a study that was done in Italy a few years back um, at the University of Siena. Uh, and what they did is they took a, a, a marketed steroid called betamethasone, and it's available actually in Europe in a liquid solution. So it's a, in a small cup that a patient would drink, okay? Um, and they delivered the drug every day for 30 days, and they saw a significant improvement in the symptoms of ataxia. So we saw, you know, better, uh, they were able to stand better, they had better balance, they were able to walk better, um, better, you know, coordination. Um, so all of this was, was really exciting and indicative that this could be a good treatment. The problem is we felt that the dose was too high and could lead to, you know, you're probably familiar um, if you've ever known someone who's had to be on prednisone or other steroids, um, it causes, you know, moon face and uh, other, you know, swelling, um, you know, mood disorders, you know, anxiety, sleeplessness, that sort of thing. So nothing that would, you know, uh, kill a child by, by any means, but, you know, is, is, uh, you know, not as uh, good as far as quality of life. Sure. So our approach was to reformulate betamethasone and to concentrate it into an oral spray. So these kids actually have trouble swallowing too, you know, so even drinking the liquid was, was difficult for some of these kids. So this is an oral spray that goes onto the tongue <laughs> and betamethasone is rapidly absorbed the exciting thing is we are getting, or we, we're seeing blood levels equivalent to the liquid form at 170th of the dose. So just a fraction of the dose. And we're able, again, because we're getting it directly into the blood, you know, rather than having to go through the stomach again. Yeah. So, so what we have to do is a PK trials, pharmacokinetic study to show that we're getting blood levels uh, similar to what they saw with the oral. And then the FDA is asking us to do a, a small safety and efficacy study. So it'll probably be in about oh, 100 patients or so. Um, so the pharmacokinetic study will finish next year and then we'll be able to go directly into phase three um, that program will start in early 23 and should finish up certainly by late 24. So we should be able to file uh, in 25. So we'll we should have 104, the one we just talked about for yeah. subarachnoid hemorrhage. That should be on the market by 25, maybe late 24 even if if we're lucky. Okay. Um, and then this 102 will follow about a year later. And uh, we're working with all the top. Uh, centers of excellence that treat these kids. In fact, the, the number one clinic in the whole world is Johns Hopkins. Yeah. And uh, we've been working with them for years. They, uh, they're really excited about what we're doing. Um, they will be our principal investigators for the phase three program. You know, and obviously if this works, you know, they would adopt this very, very quickly. There's about 12 centers of excellence in the United States so literally, we can service this market uh, with one or two salespeople. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and it's, um, I didn't mention, but it's probably about $150 million opportunity just in the United States and probably similar size in Europe as well. That's great. And I mean, what a great um, goal. I mean, when you talk about kids and you hear about you know, health issues kids that kids have that are so sad and, and you mentioned there's not 
there's nothing that you can really do for a lot of these because there's not a current option as far as medication goes. So that would be a game changer for so many families. Yeah. Yeah. So we plan to work with the families. Actually, there's, uh, you know, patient advocacy groups uh, that will want to support uh, so that we can help the families get access to treatment because uh, they, they literally have to go to these centers so they can be anywhere in the country, but they have to travel to Johns Hopkins or, you know, Cleveland Clinic or Stanford, whatever, yep. you know, to get their care. So. It's also, it's, it's, it sounds funny to talk about the year 2025. I know. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, two, it's almost 2022. So I guess it's not that, that far off, but the, the life of a life science company, um, it's amazing that you have to plan that far in advance. Most companies are, are trying to survive to, you know, to get to the end of the month or the end of the quarter. Um, you guys are looking out and planning for things that may or may not happen four years from now. No, that's true. Um, you know, but but a couple points. I mean, one, we're in a, a very fortunate position where we have uh, $50 million of cash. So that's really two years of operating runway. Yeah, um, that's great. So we can literally finish the program for subarachnoid hemorrhage uh, and submit it to the FDA. We'll probably be close to done with our, our 102 that I just told you about. And our next program, 101, is really the big one. It's uh, it's a longer program. Uh, probably will take a, an extra year or two to get that through the FDA, assuming all the trials are successful. Um, but that has a market potential in the U.S. alone that could be one and a half billion dollars. Wow! So it's a real big opportunity, and it's a huge problem. So I can tell you more about that too, if, if we have yeah, time. Yeah, let, let's do it. Okay, so GTX 101, another uh, digit difference here. Yep. Um, this one is for uh, post-herpetic neuralgia, another mouthful. That's, um, but it's easier than the last one was. <laughs> it's a little easier, yeah. Um, what this is, is severe uh, nerve pain associated with a shingles infection. So you're probably very familiar with shingles. Um, you know, it's caused by the same virus that causes chickenpox. Yeah. So the virus lays dormant in our bodies our entire lives. And then for reasons we don't know, it'll flare up and cause shingles. And shingles, uh, the infection itself is very painful, but it usually resolves within a month or so. Um, but unfortunately, 60% of patients that get shingles end up having severe nerve pain for more than a year. Wow. And it's such, you know, painful, horrible, you know, persistent pain that it is disruptive to their lives. Yeah. I mean, they, they really, they can't work. They can't sleep. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, really debilitating pain. Um, so today the options are not great, honestly, um, which is a reason why we're we're really focused on it. Um, typically, physicians will prescribe a drug called gabapentin. Um, this is a drug that's been around forever. It's generic. It's cheap. So the payers require you to try that first. Okay. okay. In most patients, it doesn't work, um, and it has nasty side effects. So patients don't like it. Um, so they will, the payers will then allow the, the prescriber to give the patient a patch. You've probably heard of the lidocaine patches maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. They're used for a range of pain, uh, diseases or, or, you know, situations. Um, the problem with the patch though, in PHN is you can only apply it. You can only wear it for 12 hours on, and then you have to take it off for 12 okay. hours. Okay. Oh, for 12 hours. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, if you think about it, if you put it on in the morning, you get pain relief, bless you, for the day. Um, <laughs> I tried to mute. <laughs> I'll have to edit that out. That's good. But, um, you know, you can't, you can't wear it at night. So, you know, big problem for these patients is they can't sleep. So they just end up being exhausted. Um, the other problem and is so is this really sorry to interrupt, but so I have some personal experience with this. My wife had shingles while we uh, while she was pregnant with our third child. So this is about oh, two, wow. years, two years ago. Um, she didn't experience any of the, I guess, the nerve damage or the pain that you mentioned after the shingles cleared up. But during the time where she had shingles, it was it was pretty bad. 
So yeah. is are is the treatment you're just you're describing, is this for people that are experiencing the nerve damage and continued pain after the shingles have cleared up? Correct. It's okay. it's after. None of these treatments are used during active infection. Got it. Okay. So yeah. the the blisters need to heal. Um and uh so yeah, it's it's post. And and your your wife is lucky, you know, yeah. literally it sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, 60% of, and it tends to affect uh, more older people more. Um, it, you know, this is, believe it or not, I was shocked to learn this. It's the number one uh, cause of suicide in, in people over 70. Wow. So, yeah, it's just, they cannot put up with the pain. It's just so yeah. unbearable. I so, mean, I guess if, it, if it's something that goes on for such an extended period of time, it, it's that's that's a really difficult situation, I'm sure. Exactly. So, so, you know, the patches, um, you know, they're, they, they take about two weeks to actually start working. So you're, you're putting them on, taking them off, putting them on, taking them off for a period of 10 days to a week before you start to get any relief. And then you can't shower with them. You can't, you can't really be active with them. They, they tend to come off. Uh, they also cause a lot of skin irritation. So a lot of patients can't tolerate them. Okay. Um, so believe it or not, um, 60%, I believe, of patients end up progressing to opioids to get paid. Wow. Okay. And, you know, you know, the problem with opioids, uh, very addictive, um, yep. you know, and physicians want to try to avoid this any way they can. So what we've done is we have taken a, a common analgesic known as bupivacaine. And I would not be surprised if you've had any outpatient surgery or dental surgery, you probably have had bupivacaine in the past. It's a very, um, very effective analgesic. It has a rapid onset of action, which is great. You know, so as soon as you inject it, you get immediate, uh, you know, numbness, um, and then it has a long, uh, uh, you know, uh, action. So almost a, a biphasic effect where you get that immediate burst of, of pain relief and then a sustained relief uh, plateau. So we, we tend to see a period of at least eight to 12 hours of pain relief. And so what we're doing is we're taking bupivacaine, concentrating it into a topical spray. So it's in a little spray bottle that you spray wherever you have pain. I mean, people, this post-herpetic neuralgia, uh, I talked to uh, an investor who said he had it on the back of his head and it, he couldn't put a patch there. And yeah. he said it was just so uncomfortable and painful. Um, so you spray it anywhere you have pain. There's a, a, a solvent in it that disperses the drug. So you get even uh, an even layer of drug onto the skin it immediately absorbs into the dermis where, you know, in our, surrounding the nerve where you're feeling the pain and it numbs the nerve. And what's great about it is very little of it is getting into the bloodstream where you don't want it. You really sure. want it into, you know, into the skin, deep yep. into the skin, you know, and into the nerves that feed that area. So uh, we're very encouraged by the uh, early studies we've done. Um, and, uh, it looks like you could spray this on in the morning and, and again at night. So you can do this around the clock, get 24 hour pain relief. Um, we, uh, we're currently planning a, what we're about to start actually a skin sensitivity study in mini pigs, believe it or not. Okay. Um, the FDA, uh, has a, um, a requirement that any topical, you have to do a skin sensitivity study in mini pigs. Uh, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Pig skin is just like ours, apparently. All right. Okay. So the absorption profile is very similar to human skin. So we want to look at the absorption profile. We want to look at, um, make sure that we don't see any skin sensitivity. We have seen none in our previous studies. Um, and then we'll go immediately into what we call a SADMAD or single ascending dose, multiple ascending dose study. So this will help us dial in. Do we need one spray or two sprays? You know, so what is the appropriate dosing? Um, we should finish that next year. And then by the end of next year, roll into a phase two study. 
So um, a lot of clinical activity going on. When you look at all these programs, um, you know, we've got uh, probably six or seven key milestones next year that could be nice catalysts for us. That's great. And sometimes you talk to companies that kind of have all their eggs in one basket where, where they've got one, one drug in development and it's almost, they don't want to maybe say this out loud, but it's like, if that one doesn't work out, they don't have much to fall back on. So it's, it's great to hear that you guys have a few kind of irons in the fire at the same time, I guess if you want to want to call it that. Well, and we were there, you know, as I told you at the beginning, I mean, we, we were a one drug company and unfortunately that drug failed. And, you know, we got very fortunate that we were able to raise the capital we did and do this acquisition. Um, so it really has changed the outlook for the company completely. Um, but we have more in the clinic, in a preclinical stage too. So we have these first three drugs, but we have another drug in the preclinical stage for trigeminal neuralgia. Um, and this would be a nasal spray, uh, a nasal spray of lidocaine that would numb the trigeminal nerve. There's about uh, 20, 30,000 people that suffer from this. And again, it's a very debilitating nerve pain. Um, yeah. it, it really ruins people's lives and there's no treatment today uh other than uh, you know unfortunately most of these people end up being on opioids to to deal with the pain so anything that anything that the world can come up with as an alternative to opioids is definitely a, a positive thing for sure no for sure and you know this um this drug I was just telling you about the the bupivacaine gtx 10101 the the topical spray yep you know we expect this could also be very beneficial in uh, other pain indications like diabetic neuropathy. Um, you know, this is a, you know, really uh, significant pain area that, you know, there's just not a lot of options for these patients. Um, other myalgias, even low back pain, as common as that is, uh, you know, this, this could work in those indications. So our plan is to get our uh, drug approved for PHN first, and then do additional studies in these other indications and potentially expand the label. Um, so this this could significantly increase the market in the United States. That's great. And and I guess looking at all this, you you mentioned I think that you, I think you said earlier in our conversation that you uh, eighteen months or so ago when the, the when the stock market was very favorable, I guess towards life science companies it kind of brought you guys into a position where you were able to raise some money that made all this possible. Right. Um, obviously there's been a lot of COVID has been horrible for the world, but this, this sounds like maybe it's a little bit of a silver lining in that it kind of maybe fueled the the run up in the stock market for life science companies and put you guys in a position to raise some cash. And then that cash is going to go to these few causes that could maybe make some really life-changing uh, things happen for a lot of families and a lot of people. So that's, that's really great to hear. Yeah, we were so fortunate, really, and and it was uh, sort of a, a you know a halo effect from COVID, without a doubt. You know, biotechs were really hot yeah. about a year ago. Um, you know, and so we raised money uh, at that point. The sixty million we raised at around eight dollars a share. Okay. And our current share price is well, I'm not sure where we are today. A buck twenty five or something. Okay. Seven. Um, so, you know, What's, which is interesting because it almost puts you guys at like at cash value. We are totally at about our, cash which is, value. That, that seems like an easy, I mean, you know, I'm not, we're not giving financial advice here, but yep. it seems like a pretty safe bet if you're, if you're buying into a company that's got all this stuff going on and, and you can buy it at cash value. Well, we think so. And, um, you know, the, the challenge I've had is that, you know, people knew us as a one drug company with, with our cardiovascular drug. Um, And so now it's a matter of, you know, now that we've closed this uh, acquisition a few months ago, you know, getting out and talking to people like yourself and, you know, having them be aware of the story. And uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, we've got to execute, too. I keep telling the team, you know, uh, we've got to do our job, Um, but we've got a great team. Honestly, uh, you know, our uh, key folks have been together, gosh, for the entire time I've been there. So all of our management team has been there for at least five years. Our chief operating officer is a co-founder of the company. He's been there for 10, 12 years. Um, So, you know, tremendous team, real commitment to what we're doing. 
um, and very experienced. This is a group that really knows what they're doing. And, you know, so hopefully, uh, you know, I've got a lot of confidence we'll be able to get these across the goal line. And as you say, I mean, you look at the benefit this can have, you know, these aren't huge markets, at least the first two. Uh, I think uh, the PHN, the pain indication could be potentially a lot bigger, but such serious problems, right? And we can really make a difference in the lives of these patients and their families. Yep. It sounds like it. That's that's amazing. Well, I guess, you know, before we wrap up the uh, the conversation, is there anything else about the company or maybe any thoughts on the San Diego life science ecosystem that you'd want to share? Well, you know, we touched on it. it you, you did a great job, by the way. And I, I think we've pretty much covered the Acosti story, at least Good. for now. Um, I'd love an opportunity to come back, you know, once we hit some of these milestones. That'd be great. Yeah. Uh, you know, but again, I just can't say enough about San Diego, uh, you know, and, and the environment here. You know, it's such a great industry in general, uh, but the, it's such a close community here in San Diego. Um, you know, you, you look at all of the powerhouse uh, innovation and research going on within, you know, just a few square miles. It's it's amazing. All yep. you know, kind of around that La Jolla, you know, UTC, you know, area. So, um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty special. It sounds like the the the, uh, the biotech and life science uh, ecosystem is kind of outgrowing. The, the Traditionally, it's like up by Torrey Pines and in that little pocket that you mentioned. But um, there's not enough space, I think, to, to house the, the growth, which is, I guess, for San Diego, that's a really good problem to have. No, it's a it's a great problem. You know, um, with COVID, you know, it's interesting. Our industry can really work very effectively virtually. So, you know, with the exception of our folks that have to be in the lab, um, you know, I mean, it's we haven't skipped a beat, you know, working uh, remotely. So, um, you know, we'll see how everything goes with Omicron. Hopefully we we all get through this winter well. But, uh, you know, we're not in any rush to get back to the office. You know, Zoom is our best friend. (laughs) Yeah, it sure is. (laughs) Yeah. Well, great. Well, uh, Jan, this has really been a fun conversation. I appreciate you making time and, uh, and thanks again for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan, for inviting me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Visit biotechandbreweries.com to stay up to date on the latest episodes.